to this day, uh, in one way, you you know that he had magnetic personality. It was almost like a cult figure to a certain extent. Is that to this day, six years after his death, he's still, still getting the loyalty. People still love him. The people who work for him still love the man. My guest today is Gary Weiss. Gary has been uncovering Wall Street wrongdoings for nearly two decades. He's written for Barron's, Business Week, as well as Condé Nast Portfolio. His latest book is Retail Gangster, the insane real-life story of Crazy Eddie. Before Enron, before Madoff, before the Wolf of Wall Street, there was Eddie Antoff. Antoff was a marketing genius. He turned a tiny Brooklyn store into the largest retailer of consumer electronics in the Northeast under the name of Crazy Eddie. The company had one of the most iconic ad campaigns in history. Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane. Yet few knew that from day one, Crazy Eddie was built on fraud. The company went public in 1984, and once the extent of the fraud was revealed, it turned out to be one of the largest SEC frauds in American history. In fact, the Crazy Eddie fraud scheme is now taught in every business school across the United States. I recently sat down with Gary, and we talked about how Anton was able to defraud so many people for such a long period of time and why the fraud is studied today in business schools. Gary, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it, and I've been looking forward to it ever since I read your book. And folks, the name of the book is Retail Gangster, the insane real-life story of Crazy Eddie. And what you're going to teach us here, Gary, this on the man on the cover is not Crazy Eddie. In fact... There's only a few pictures of Crazy Eddie out there, and they're usually criminal ones. This was the uh, 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 actor, interviewer, radio personality, Jerry Carroll. Jerry Carroll. Right. All right. So first off. uh, Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. My my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, Especially if you lived in New York in the 80s, you could not, there's no way you could not know of the Crazy Eddie consumer retail electronic chain. Impossible. Uh, there were masters in terms of advertising, and I think you put somewhere in the book here that their brand was more well-known than something. I think it was pretty, uh, than who was president or something, some crazy stuff. Reagan, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, but you put something in there that most people knew Crazy Eddie than they knew something else. I forgot what you uh, put in here, but it was some pretty amazing stat. So what made you write this book? Well, I'd always been interested in Crazy Eddie. You know, it was sort of an interesting sort of background project that I'd always been thinking about doing. Um, I actually got to know Sammy Antar, who was the whistleblower, uh, about 15 years ago. We got to know, I got to know him. It's described in the book. And, you know, even though I, I, I had never actually been in a Crazy Eddie store, you know, it was a major cultural influence, and and it and it combined two two things that you don't see that often. It was a, it was a major fraud, and at the same time, it was kind of a major asset to New York City, uh, a major cultural influence. Uh, and you don't see that very often. No one could say that about Enron or Madoff that he had any positive qualities. Um, but I think Crazy Eddie is, is remembered to this day and, and in, a, in, a, in a favorable way by generations of New Yorkers and the people throughout the Northeast in America. Right. So let's take a step back. Who was Crazy? What was Crazy Eddie? 
who was this guy, Eddie Anto, who started it? And uh, what, what was this phenomena, this retelling phenomena that he created with marketing glitz that turned out to be one of the largest security frauds, I think, in the SEC history? Yeah. Yeah, Eddie Eddie Antar was just a, was just a kid from Brooklyn. He was a high school dropout. He was um, very very bright, but not very well educated. You know, he had dropped out of high school at fourteen, and I think he's a proof of the adage that you know you don't necessarily need a lot of schooling to become a success. Because well, he became a success, not through necessarily through legit the most legitimate means, but he certainly did. He got his uh, early training uh, on Times Square, working in in places that ripped off tourists. You know, they're still there, you know, just as much as they were back then. Very profitable business. You know, you overcharge people for cameras and binoculars and so on. That's how Eddie learned his business. He was set up in the electronics business by his father on uh, Kings Highway, which is in a middle, a lower middle class neighborhood. And he was said, look, you know, you got to start, you know, start earning your living. You know, you're 21, you're getting married. Now you got to, you know, got to stand on your own two feet. And Eddie uh, came up with some really brilliant ideas in terms of how to make money in electronics at a time when it was hard for a little guy to make money in electronics. And he, he figured it out. Yeah, what most people don't remember is that electronic stores, electronic companies, Sony and Panasonic, they made mm -hmm. retailers sell their uh stereo equipment and electronic equipment at MSRP, manufacturer's suggest the yeah. retail price. So you couldn't break price or else they wouldn't sell you. Is that right? Right, right, yeah, they they, they were at war, uh, as I described in the book, uh, the manufacturers, not just of electronic goods, but of all kinds of goods, uh, were at war with discounters. Uh, since the 1940s, it was this massive war and the uh, manufacturers won. Uh, they got something called fair trade. It's really ironic that they called it yeah. fair trade because it wasn't fair, you know, not from the consumer standpoint, certainly. But fair trade, you know, allowed manufacturers to set the price of goods down the, down the supply chain. And it was ridiculous. And Eddie, he figured out ways around that. Okay. So Eddie is how old? 22, 23, somewhere around there? Yeah, when early 20s. Early, early 20s, 20s, he takes over yeah. a store, which was called Sights and Sounds, if I recall, on King's Highway. Right. Uh, I pass that often. I'm, I still live in the neighborhood. And mm -hmm. uh, I do remember the Crazy Eddie stores. And uh, the, on the cover of the book, you have the uh, big Crazy Eddie store. This was on um, this was on Coney Island Avenue. This was the That's right. store on Coney Island That's Avenue. That's right. Second store. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so he opens up a electronic store that sells back in the day was records records was a big part of it right mm -hmm. uh records right. uh all sorts of electronic uh stereo equipment and what happens mm -hmm. what's so unique about what he does well he figured out a way of of uh pitching to people outside of his neighborhood he wasn't going to make any money uh, selling to people in brooklyn you know in the immediate area he had a he had a sell to people in manhattan so he figured out a way he he figured out a way of appealing to people in his age group you know the baby boomers because they absolutely loved music and they bought music and they had their parents buy the music so he advertised the village voice and he used a technique uh, it's as old as the hill, you know, the crazy merchant technique. It's, it goes back uh, decades and decades and decades. This is where he said, like, you know, you know I'm so nuts, I, I'm charging less than, than I can to, to make money. That sort of thing. It's, it's hokey. And he, he figured out a way of making that 
make it make making that work. And that was the whole basis of his marketing until it all came collapsing. And you know, as a marketer, and he hired the right people, he hired some really smart people. And this is how he marketed his products. Now that was the legitimate side of Crazy Eddie. It was a marketing genius, you know. Okay, wait, wait, hang uh, on. Jerry Carroll. Before you go into that, before you go into that, so let me just set the stage. Uh -huh. Let me put a little context here. Sure. You walked into a store back in the old days. Uh, a Panasonic stereo system is marked two hundred ninety nine dollars. You say, "I want that one." They wrapped it up, put in a box, and you pay two hundred ninety nine dollars plus tax. Right. You walked into Crazy Eddie's store on Kings Highway. And you looked at that, and he would advertise that two ninety nine, which cost him, let's say, two hundred and fifty dollars. He would advertise it for mm -hmm. one ninety nine, and you'd walk in there and say, "Wow, that is a real good buy, right?" Uh, Did yeah. you walk out with it? Well, you might. Now, if uh, two things, one of two things would happen: he'd either switch you away from that advertising product. He'd say, "Look, you know, that's that Sony, that kind of, that's not that's no good. Here's here's a Sharp. Here's a here's a low." brand you never heard of it's better and he'd, he'd make more money on that lower margin product so people didn't think that was bait and switch because if you're you know they're not being switched to a higher price but it's still bait and switch it's still not not kosher that's one way one thing that would happen to you the other thing that would happen to you is that okay you insist upon that that name brand product he would sell it to you and then that's when the scam started to work that's when the sam start, started to 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 he would figure out a way of doing that involved in collecting tax and not passing it on to the consumer to the to the taxing authorities that gave him a built-in profit margin because if you're collecting tax you know it was seven percent in those days it was just seven percent that's it that's quite a profit margin and, and and he was able because he collected the tax but didn't hand it in he was able to ch actually charge the advertised price that's how he was he was and he was never he was never caught i that was one way. The other thing that he used to do is that uh, he used to repackage. You, he used to repackage returned goods and sell it as new, which you're not supposed to do. That was the other way he would be able to beat the competition, right. selling a used goods as new. Right. So when does he come up with? And he could be just one, and it's still, you know, it's not leveraging your brand. If you're the mm -hmm. only guy in the store doing this and he had a couple of cohorts in the store, worked with him at the time, or started out with him at the time, so you're only, yeah. you still need a stream of people to come in. How did all that change when he hires Jerry Carroll? Jerry Carroll was absolutely brilliant. He was a, a disc jockey at WPI XFM at a radio station, and he he had this 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 really unique way of selling. I, I don't want to imitate because you can you can see him on on, uh, on YouTube videos, I and mean, to this day, people you know just marvel at this guy with a with a super salesman he was. As soon as he he is as soon as he had this this personality, you know, this TV personality growing up over this product over this consumer electronics chain uh as soon as you had that you know you had this sort of almost like a, a, a the electronics chain created a star and this star was bringing people into the store this began around 1977 and, and his sales just took off through the roof he he was uh he was all over the tv uh eddie was buying advertising everywhere in in, in the northeast and it just caused it just caused this sort of this crazy Eddie. It was called a 
it was called a craze. It was it was it was recognized at the time for what it was, which was a cultural phenomenon. That it was it was a it was like way up there with uh, other cultural phenomena taking place in the, in the early seventies. Right. So I didn't. I loved it. A spoof on it. Uh, it was in the movie Splash. Yeah. I remember seeing it. And uh, uh, this morning, even before our, our uh, interview, uh, for a conversation, I went on to YouTube, and I'll put the link in below uh, for the. Um, for the doo-wop uh, Crazy Eddie commercial that I can't believe it was 1977 or so. I remembered all the words. I remembered all the words. It was just, it was really just a phenomenal, uh, it just kept going on. It's, it, 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 you know, I grew up in Brooklyn and Eddie was in the community that I live in. So he was mm -hmm. looked as an amazing businessman. You know, we didn't know any of this mm -hmm. stuff behind all of that, of course. And I was a young kid. In fact, I did deliver when I worked uh, one summer job uh, in a restaurant. I did deliver to Crazy Eddie. I delivered a lunch, not to him, but someone in the store. And I remember I made my first tip. I don't know, like, lady gave me $10 for $8 of meal. And I said, I don't have $2 change. She goes, no, that's your tip. And that's how stupid I was. But that was my, I remember mm -hmm. walking into that store. And my mother actually worked in the warehouse uh, on every day. Mm -hmm. She got a job. It was a few blocks from from uh, from our house, and and she was a bookkeeper back in the early early days, and um, uh, so it was really amazing at the amount of of uh, of coverage that if you lived in the tri-state area back in the seventies and eighties, you it's impossible for you to not have heard of Crazy Eddie. That was your first stop anytime you bought electronics. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he he advertised much more than all the other electronics retailers combined, and you know, over time he became the largest uh, electronics uh, chain in the mid in the Northeast and uh, probably in the whole country. Get forty three stores. It's very unusual, you know, to have so many stores and to be raking in all that that cash. Um, and and you know, he became a national phenomenon. A national phenomenon. But the thing is that you brought up, and that I remember back in the day. He was a ghost. He was not in the press. He did not want publicity. People didn't know who he was. He could have passed you in the street, and you would not have known that you were walking by Eddie Anta. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he craved anonymity. You know his uh, his uh, his his motto, which he articulated to the people around him, was in in anonymity there is security. Um, you know, he didn't want to be recognized. He wanted to have Jerry Carroll being out there as the front man. Um, turns out he was actually pretty good. And you know, when he when he finally did wind up giving interviews to the press, he was he was not bad. He was good. He was articulate. And also he was very good. Um, you know, in, in when he did wind up talking to people, he wasn't bad. But he didn't want that. He wanted to stay out of the limelight. And that helped when he began to commit crimes because, you know, he didn't have a, uh, you know, he didn't have a public profile. Right. So from day one, he is in business uh, as a fraud because any sales tax that's coming in is never getting paid to the government. Right. So from day one, right. tell me how the, tell me how the crime started to multiply and before Sam E. Antar his cousin, who became the CFO, who became the whistleblower, uh, and now is a consultant to the FBI and many other law enforcement on how fraud is committed. A uh, man's a genius in that sense. And they go to him. It's like almost a catch me if you can. Fred, Frank Abergnale, they all came to him and said, how do, how do we catch forgers? 
so um, uh, Sammy Antar really reformed in that sense, and and I know he teaches in university, appears in university, shows them how how all well the books are cooked and everything. After the sales tax, you write that everything from that point on had the guise of a, re, of a legitimate business, but underneath was extremely corrupt and fraudulent from day one. Walk us mm-hmm. through that. Well, um, you know, stealing, stealing the sales tax, skimming, skimming the, um, the profits, um, it was kind of a gateway drug, as I put it, you know, he had committed, you know, really, I mean, you're not supposed to steal sales tax. That's a felony. And he got away with it. So that was kind of a, what I call a gateway drug. He's going to do other things. Um, he used to um, commit securities fraud. I should say, I'm sorry, insurance fraud. Uh, as if it was no big deal. You know, if they had a, a leak in the in, in the pipes or there's some water coming in through the roof, fine. He'd take advantage of it. They called it spiking the claim. They'd truck in merchandise that wasn't selling. They'd bring it into the store where there was the leak and they'd hose it down and make it part of the claim. They call that spiking the claim. They had an insurance adjuster working for them who they paid off, who helped them in this endeavor. So that was one way. They, the insurance fraud was something that they were doing all the time. And they continued to do it for years. You know, It wasn't just in the beginning. That was one thing they were doing. The other thing was warranty fraud. That was a big thing that, that Eddie was doing. Um, brought in guy, a guy who um, that was trained in warranty fraud by uh, his father who ran some electronic store and he brought in the guy and they if you brought in a product that needed that needed um, needed service he he put in the claim and he put in the claim for more than it was worth and he put in the claim even if he didn't do the work so so let me um, just interrupt you so let me just walk our audience yeah. through that so when you bring in a claim for a Panasonic or a Sony and you yeah. fix that you send the the retailer sends that claim, like an insurance claim, to the company. The company right. sees that the object or uh, item was repaired and pays you for that repair. Right. So and they didn't have very stringent ways of proving that you in fact had it. You just give them the model number. They trusted you. Ah, huh? big mistake. They trusted. They trusted Eddie, and they trusted all retailers. But. Um, you know, see, Eddie, see, Eddie did, did warranty service. If he didn't do warranty service, I wouldn't have been wrong, but he did warranty service. So that's how it, that's how it worked out. So you bring in the claim and he, and he made hundreds of thousands of dollars doing this. He, you, you'd bring in your unit and he, he'd put in a fraudulent claim. Maybe he didn't even get it repaired. He put in a fraudulent claim and he did it repeatedly ripping off the manufacturers and only at the end that they find out what was going on. So between the warranty fraud and the skimming um, of profits, uh, which he w- which they were doing systematically and stealing sales tax um, and engaging in bait and switch, um, th- there was always something going on that wasn't quite kosher, if you'll pardon the expression. Um, and that's the way it was forever, but that's particular. that's the way it was up until the time when things really started to heat up, when they really learned to get into the big time of fraud. And that's when Sammy Antar uh, okay. became involved. As you mentioned, Sammy Antar was the cousin of Eddie. Uh, he'd been put through school by Eddie. He was trained as an accountant. And now in order to really steal, you need an accountant. You need an accountant to help you commit securities fraud. 
And uh, Sammy was able to figure out a way of, of maximizing the securities fraud to really do it right in the run-up to their going public, which took place in 1984. Right, but hold up to that yet. Hold up. I just want to get the, they just sure. build up this business. So it's a local business with a mm-hmm. humongous footprint in marketing, uh, much, much bigger than their stores could possibly be. Uh, nobody mm-hmm. advertises as much as them. They have, their stores are full. People, they have, I remember they used to run promotions, used to give away a color TV, used to have lines down the whole city block waiting yeah. to get into the store. And brilliant, brilliant marketing, but you just went back behind, everything was corrupt. Sales tax wasn't being paid, insurance fraud, uh, warranty fraud, bait and switch, all those things were taking place. You put it in the book here as well that Eddie surrounds himself, his organization is with very, very close people, predominantly family members, and people that mm. he knows for a long time. Just touch on that for us. Yeah, well, he he uh, you know was the uh, head of his head of his family. Uh, he became head of the um, you know this 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 family. Uh, the Antar family was formerly headed by his father, same M Antar, um, and uh, you know it was a very tightly knit Syrian Jewish uh, family. And uh, he he uh, took over from his father uh, in the seventies after Crazy Eddie became big. Uh, his father resented it. There was a lot of friction between himself and his father, but uh, they worked together for the most part. And um, as head of the family, Eddie hired relatives. Now that 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 you know satisfied his relatives. You know he helped his relatives, but they also helped him because if you're going to commit securities fraud, you can commit crime at any level. You need to have a nucleus of loyal people, and it really helps. If you have family members and close friends, and that's what Eddie did, he surrounded himself with family members and and, and close friends, and um, that's why his accountant, his chief financial officer, was his baby cousin, right. Sammy. Right. How old was Sammy when he takes that job? He's a he's by twenty something. He's a young guy. Just really, he became the de facto chief financial officer when he was in his early twenties. He had graduated from. Uh, uh, Baruch College in late 70s, 1979, I believe it was, and, and uh, he immediately went to work, and he'd always, always worked at Crazy Eddie, and he, he became an accountant, uh, a CF, uh, a, 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 a certified public accountant, a CPA, went immediately to work for uh, the auditors, Crazy Eddie's auditors, who were work, work, working on their books, and at the same time, he was being groomed to become the chief financial officer, which he, in fact, became. And this was at a very, very early age. Right. What, what, was it, what was it that you could see that, you know, the, as the business grows and before we get into the company going public with a real fraud, and I said real fraud, where a fraud mm-hmm. kicks in, and I think you wrote here, uh, or, or maybe your publicist wrote this, I think it's a great line. Before Enron, before Madoff, before the Wolf of Wall Street, Eddie Antar's corruption mm. was second to none. <laughs> the difference was that it was a street franchise, a local place that was in the bloodstream of everyone's daily life in the 70s and early 80s. And Eddie pulled it off with a certain style and an in-your-face blue-collar chutzpah. <laughs> it's just absolutely, it did in plain sight. There was no hiding. It was, it was really yeah. done in front. So what, what about his personality that that enamored people to want to be close to him 
uh, to want to just be in his in his in his sphere of influence. Well, he had a kind of uh, he had a very magnetic personality, you know. Um, he he to this day, in one way, you you know that he had magnetic personality. It was almost like a cult figure yep. to a certain extent. Is that to this day, six years after his death, he's still still getting the loyalty. People still love him. The people who work for him still love the man. Um, despite everything that happened, they still love the man. And there's still a lot of loyalty to him personally among the people who know him, even the people who were ripped off, the people who are close to him who were ripped off with some exceptions. Basically it's all forgive and forget. And they still, you know, they still, they still love the man. They still love the man uh, even after all that had happened. And, and to this day, even though he's been dead, you know, they still remembered him. He had this, this, this sort of cult-like ability, this sort of a cult leader type ability, magnetic leadership qualities to, that people wanted to do what he told them to do. He was very persuasive, very charming. And uh, it worked, and the rest was, was history. Yeah. Okay. So the business starts to grow. They go from one store mm -hmm. to uh, several stores. I remember when they went to 10 stores. I think the 10 stores was in 79 or 80. It was pretty early on then. And uh, they have them in the Bronx. They have, oh, you tell a fascinating thing. I do remember this clearly. In 1977, when there was the, um, when uh, the blackout in New York and everyone is looted, except the Crazy Eddie stores. Share, share with us why. <laughs> yeah, it's because he hired, uh, he hired off-duty police officers to be his security guards. So he uh, shipped off a bunch to, to the Bronx store uh, which was on Fordham Road in the Bronx. I mean, that's my old neighborhood. Uh, by the late 70s. It was terrible. It was, it was pretty bad. It was terrible. And so he had shotgun-wielding guards right there in the Bronx at Fordham Road. And uh, so nobody looted the Crazy Eddie store. Uh, but they looted everything else on Fordham Road. Yeah, I do remember uh, I knew some people who were policemen who, when I mentioned I was from the community, this is years later, they said, oh, mm -hmm. I used to, I used to uh, work for Crazy Eddie. I used to take care of all of them. And uh, all the off-duty cops uh, who needed to moonlight, he paid them handsomely. And uh, they loved the position. They, they loved being his security detail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, um, he, he got along well with the police. Um, and... Um, you know, he resented it some years later when, in fact, the police were called on him. But that's going ahead of our right, uh, right, right. Going ahead of our story. A okay, bit. so now the business continues to expand. The money skimming continues to go on. Sales mm -hmm. tax, all these things, and they continue to mm -hmm. grow. And uh, how do they come up with the idea? Let's go public. They always wanted to go public. You know, in the 70s, 80s, early 80s, uh, going public was starting to be a really big thing. You know, the, the market was in decline. Um, Sammy Antar, Eddie's cousin, was a uh, devotee of the stock market. And he pointed out to them that if you're going to go public, okay, if you're going to go public, um, they want to see a growing business. Okay, now you're, and his advice was, okay, you're growing but there's a problem. You're skimming all this cash. You're skimming profits. You're skimming your profits. Now that means that you know you're 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 shooting yourself in the foot. You know you don't want to skim your profits. You know, true, you're saving on taxes. 
You want a lot of profits, even if it means overpaying your taxes. You, you want profits and profits and profits. So he figured out a way of manipulating the skim, all this the skim money that he was skimming off, manipulating the skim to give the appearance of profit growth growth far beyond their actual profit growth. You know, they were growing, but you know, when you grow as a store, you know, sure, you're getting in more and more revenues. We, you may, may not necessarily be getting more and more profits. So he fixed that. He fixed that by systematically reducing the profits skim, the skim of the profits year after year after year. This was between around 1979 and 1983 because they went public in 1984. And uh, they were able to produce this this prospectus. You know, they got they got a top-notch underwriter at Con Wall Street. She said to Wall Street, look at the wonderful profits. But you want to know something, Gary? It didn't take uh-huh. it didn't take much to con Wall Street. Because well, I remember <laughs> that time. 83, I started as a floor trader on the floor of the New York Futures Exchange. They went public in uh-huh. 84. I think Oppenheimer was the uh, underwriter. So I do remember speaking to some friends of mine who happen to be analysts in stock firms and, uh, and these analysts were excited to buy shares because everyone knew the name or even shop there. So you had wall street, the people who work on wall street, the young people, especially who were in the business, all know the name, all have shopped in the store, all have seen the crowds and want to get in on this. So the due diligence, uh, Sammy Antar's brilliant mastermind of fixing this, and a diabolical uh, mastermind in doing, in doing an illegal thing. But uh, Wall Street was, I don't want to say complicit, but Wall Street kind of, you know, they, they didn't do their due diligence. They, they really bought into the crazy Eddie story. Yeah, well, complicit would not be an overstatement. They really were complicit. You know, they they you know they were enthusiastic. Uh, they were enthusiastic because of the phony numbers. And you know, you have to. They were making like two. Their their profits were in real terms going up like two percent a year. Because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's electronics. There is not much money in electronics. Yeah, there wasn't that much. And he and 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 Eddie and Sam and Eddie were able to because by reducing the amount of this money that they were skimming. They were able, and, and they were skimming this money, mind you, in cash and sending it to Israel. They, they were doing less and less skimming. They were able to turn 2% real increases to as high as 48%. Right, right. And, and it's an extraordinary uh, profitability. And, and I think, Gary, you start talking about the book, which I didn't know about, how mm-hmm. they did it with the warehouse being complicit, the Crazy Eddie Warehouse and the people there, because they started looking for inventory to decrease their inventory or to report more inventory to make all these fake numbers look real. Yeah, well, that was after they went public. After they went public, they, you know, uh, well, you know, the, the, the skim reduction aspect of the, of the securities fraud came to an end. You know, they, had, they went public and, you know, they got to, once you, once you go public on the basis of fraud, you kind of have to continue fraud because real numbers are just not going to look like but you gotta you gotta continue it's a little bit like madoff and the, yeah. you know and, and yeah. his ponzi scheme you know you gotta continue so 
the warehouses became the center of one of his frauds because you see, uh, and he got away with it. One of the reasons he got away with it so easily, and he was able to convince people to help him with this with his warehouse fraud, is that most people don't really know that the more you have in your warehouse, okay, where the value of stuff in your warehouse has a direct relationship to your profitability. Most people don't really that doesn't occur to them, but it's it, it, there's a there's a little formula that they use in computing profits that involves what's in your warehouse so you inflate what's in your warehouse and you're going to inflate your profits and that's exactly what eddie did he started inflating his profits through inflating what's in the warehouse right and the problem is as you point out is when you inflate and you have to continue that inflation every single quarter you just cannot stop it so what yeah. becomes five percent ten percent now by year number two is thirty percent and you can't look back once you're in you're in once you're in, you're in. And they call it feeding the beast. You had to just feed the beast. And and it was, you know, they had a, you know, he'd go to his warehouse manager and say, I want you to increase the amount. We have for this year, you know, in order to increase, in order to meet their profit goal, you see, that the, the Wall Street's looking for, they had to increase the number by a certain percent. They said, look, I want you to increase what the value of what's in the warehouse by X million, whatever the hell it was. And he didn't understand. And I think it's true that from, most of the time, the people he was dealing with didn't really quite grasp what was going on over there. They said, all right, we'll do it. We'll do it. So they figured out ways of doing that. They just simply take notations in pencil and they'd increase, you know, what's in the ledgers. And uh, that's how they did it. They had to do other things because after a while, you know, increasing, you know, what he was doing with the warehouses was hard to sustain. You know, you can only do that. Yeah, at a certain at a certain point, you know, it, it's it, it starts to run out of steam. So he figured out other ways of increasing your profits, and he was very good at it. You know, for as far as he went, he really knew how to how to do that. Okay, now the the person, the whistleblower, who eventually uh, works with the government and provides incredible detail behind the scenes, uh, lets the government build the case because they still were in the dock as to how this was getting done. Yeah. Right? Was Sam E. Antar. Yeah, Sam E. Antar was his cousin. And Sam E., uh, you know, he came up with the initial scheme to reduce the scam, and he uh, he was assisted with the, with the you know, actually it was, it was Eddie who came up with the original warehouse inflation scheme. Uh, but uh, they worked together to, to inflate the profits. It was one of the things that he did um, that they worked together to do. They had something called debit memos. That's where you send a, a memo. It's like an invoice to the supplier. Yeah, you owe me money because of a discount, and well, you owe me you, you owe me some money on this. The moment you write one of those those debit memos, whether it's legitimate or not, whether they ignore it or not, makes no difference. As soon as you write one of those debit memos, it immediately becomes profit. You know, so it's almost as if they were writing their own ticket. They were by just writing out debit memos, they were increasing, they were increasing their profits. You know, and that's because the rules of accounting are set up for basically legitimate people. They're not set up for liars. They're not set up for criminals. Set, so therefore, the rules of accounting allow debit memos be to, you know, to become you know profit little profit machines. Right. So. Uh... They go public in 1984 mm -hmm. uh, at $8 a share. Right. And the stock starts to fly. Mm. Right? How, how, it goes to what, 60 something or? 
Yeah, those have been over seventy dollars a share. You know, they split the the stock. You know, splitting the stock is something you do when you're when the stock's zooming and you know you want to reduce the share price. It means you give a you, you cut the price of the stock in half and, and you give people more uh, the, the same amount of shares. You double the yeah. number of shares. So he was splitting the shares, and he was oh the stock was going up. Now the reason. Uh, you know, apart from the fact that he had to continue this fraud, you know, or else he was going to be caught and, you know, he had to feed the bees. In addition to just survival, he was the biggest, Eddie and his father, members of the family, Eddie was the biggest shareholder. So, and he wasn't going to hold on to this garbage stuff. He knew it was garbage. He knew it was sustained by fraud. He started selling and selling and selling, um, dumping shares because he didn't want to hold on to the stock. Now, dumping shares to such an extent that it started to make people suspicious. You know, why are you dumping shares? You know, it doesn't look good when the CEO of a company starts to dump shares. So he used to put out an excuse. He said, well, look, I have the right to diversify my portfolio. I'm diversifying my portfolio. And people believed him. He diversifying his portfolio by selling twenty percent of his home—that's diver—that's diversifying. It was ridiculous, and yet everybody, even even the newspapers, you know, his intelligent financial journalists quoted Eddie's uh, diversifying baloney uh, in articles about CEOs diversifying their portfolio. It was it was really something, you know, just uh, the way he was able to con people because the analysts and the financial press all believed that you know CEOs are basically honest people. They they did not. This was before Madoff. This is before this is before Eddie. You know, this is before Eddie was was captured. And it, it was it was believed that you know CEOs weren't just going to lie or be criminals. Basically honest. That's why it was believed. Describe to us what the Panama pump was and how it's still studied today in business school. See, all had to do with the skim. Skim uh, had been reduced in order to provide uh, paper profits, take profits, as you know, in the run up to the IPO. So they reduced the skim, but nevertheless, Eddie and his father, members of his family, still they had a lot of money in cash in Israel, in, in bank accounts in Israel. They had, they had they had money there that they had skimmed over the years from from you know, Crazy Eddie when it was a private company. So they still had a lot of money there. And um, came the time late in our saga when Crazy Eddie needed to increase sales in its stores. You see. Uh, the store sales were lagging, you know, uh, when you, when analysts, you see, it's all about Wall Street analysts. Wall Street analysts like to look for increased sales in stores that have been around for a while. They want to be sure that the sales are increasing because the sales, because people are going into the stores, not because you're opening up more stores. So they wanted to see more sales in places like Fordham Road in the Bronx, which had been around forever, even though it was uh, the neighborhood was fast declining. They wanted to see sales in the older stores really increase. So Sammy came up with the idea and said, look, we got all this cash in Israel. Let's bring it into the United States. Let's, let's put those, 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 uh, that, all that cash into the store's cash registers to make it seem as if people are actually going into the stores and buying. So that's where the Panama pump originated. Which, which, let, me, let, me just, let me just uh, stop you there, sure. which would then 
make the numbers look even better, which would then satisfy Wall Street analysts, which would then make the stock price rise, which would then let Eddie sell more shares at a higher price. Exactly, exactly, exactly. In order to do this, you needed to have money go into the cash registers. So that's where the Panama pump originated. It, it was just, uh, you know, instead of taking money out of out of uh, uh, you know the stores like they used to, they simply brought money in from Israel. They brought it in through Panama. You see, the idea of doing that was well, you know, if you do it through Panama, you know, it comes from Israel. This is directly from Israel. Let's bring it in through Panama because they've got bank secrecy laws. You know, uh, Eddie was under the impression. I think also uh, generally uh, Eddie and his his, his uh, cohorts were under the impression that it was just like in the James Bond movies. You know, that that bank secrecy laws really meant something. You know. They didn't really mean very much by then. You know, the U.S. government was cracking bank secrets. Oh, yeah, okay, we're going to bring in these this this money through Panama, Panama, mind you, and that because of their bank secrecy laws, they'll never get wind of it. So they they brought the money to a, a bank Leumi branch in Panama, and then the they were transferred into bank drafts, and they were physically carried from Panama up to the. Up to the United States, the um, the bank drafts were deposited in the individual store accounts. You see, uh, each store had its own corporate structure, which is something that you see in in chain stores. You know, if sometimes every store will be its own little independent company, so they would put the money. They put these bank drafts from Panama into the individual store accounts, and voila, it worked. It had to work. They were putting money in the in the cash registers. And it, it gave the impression that um, the comp store sales were doing well, the stores were doing well. This was at a time, you see, when Eddie was starting to get competition. You see, his discount model was starting to be imitated, you know. People were seeing this wildly successful, you know, uh, discount store model. I said, wow, we, we, we can beat Eddie at his own game. So, you know, he was getting com- competitors really – cutting into his uh, into his profits you know in the in the um, 86 87 he was getting he was getting hammered and when do the wheels fall off and the government steps in well after a time you see because even with all this fraud even with all this fraud um it, it's it, the, the, he couldn't really sustain the profitability the way he wanted to. So profits started to decline. He just, you know, there was only so much you can do. You know, you can only do so much fraud without making it look really ridiculous. You know, you can only inflate the warehouses so much. You can only, you know, pump in so much cash from Panama. So profits started to decline. And when profits started to decline, you see, there was a sharp decline in profits, mind you. This was around 1980, uh, early 1987. There was a sharp decline in profits, sharp decline in the stock price. Now, you see, when the stock price declined, one of the disadvantages of going public came to the fore. You see, they were focusing on the advantages of going public when they went when, when they when they went public with their you know with their you know Animal all pump. their machinations and all their all their schemes. It didn't occur to them, or it did occur to them, they didn't really focus on it. That once you go public, once you're selling stock to the public, anybody can buy up your stock. And they can buy up the stock and get in control of the company, kick you out. And once they kick you out, they gain access to your books, and your books are just 
well, before you know it, you're going to go to jail. And that is precisely what happened. They attracted the interest of two of the unluckiest <laughs> takeover artists in the history of takeovers. It was this fellow, Victor Palmieri. He was a very intelligent man. He'd done a lot. He got brilliant press. You know, this is a guy who was who'd been around for many years he took over a lot of suffering companies and really you know, he, he was he was just one of the princes of wall street victor palmieri and then there was this fellow elias zinn who was a texas retailer a real uh you know again the press loved these guys you know they were colorful characters elias zinn was this guy from you know he was this college dropout. he wasn't a high school dropout. he was i believe i believe he was a college dropout. he he built up this big chain of electronic stores in Texas and Elias Zinn and Victor Palmieri combined forces to take over Crazy Eddie because they were under the impression because they believed what they read in the financial statements. They believed that this was a company that used to be really profitable, okay, and could be restored to profitability because they were smarter than the Antarctic. So they, they launched a takeover uh, bid and they got what they want you know it's like the old saying be careful what you wish for because you may get it and they got it it's actually this funny scene in the book uh antar met eddie antar met with palmieri and palmieri said i want i want this company i want my company and and, and eddie said to him mr palmieri you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Right. <laughs> yeah it was true and and, and they met milton yeah. they met uh, i think earlier on uh, milton petrie also in the yeah. uh, oh, yeah. of amazing fame. And he was just outclassed them. He probably knew what was going or got a wind of what was going on and backed off. Well, Petrie was a real, you know, he was, he was a genuinely, unlike some of the other people in the book, Petrie was one of the few people who was genuinely, a genuinely good person, you know, just, you know, and, and, and uh, Sam Antar, you know, was a cynical, hardened guy, but, you know, Sammy Antar, that's to say the, the cousin, the, he, 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 you know, this guy's a philanthropist. He gives money to 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 to, to, to ordinary people down on their luck. You know, do we really want to cheat Milt Petri? God, we don't want to do it. But they also felt, look, Petri's such a smart guy. He, he's going to find out what's going on. They can't hoodwink Milton Petri. So he met with this guy on the Upper East Side, and he served them a nice kosher meal. And, and, and you know, they they talked, and uh, he was he expressed interest in in buying the company and they sort of politely said no we yeah we don't want it but the fact that a milton petri the fact that a petri guy like him would consider buying this company uh showed the kind of you know how the extent to which they really were were hoodwinking people about the company yeah okay so let's let's speed up ahead the wheels fall off the mm -hmm. cart zinn and palmary buy the company they're missing tens of millions of dollars that never existed Eddie flees mm -hmm. the country, goes into hiding, eventually gets caught, brought back to the United States. And at that time, Sam, the accountant, his cousin, becomes the whistleblower. And I love how you put in the book that originally when Sam volunteers all his knowledge to tell them exactly how things went out, they push him back. They don't want to know. That's right. They, they, they talk to us about that. And by the way, Sam, I just want to point out that Sam... Antar was the uh, person you got most of the information. Am I right on this on this book? Or, or well, a lot of the information. Yeah. You know, I would say the majority of the of, of the book. I'd say that seventy percent of it is as out of public documents, yeah. which is to say stuff you know, like the trial transcript, right. 
um, you know, depositions, and uh, but of all, certainly of all the people I interviewed, Sam was was by far the most uh, the most cooperative and the most helpful. There's just no question about it, Sammy and her. Um, but um, yeah, Sammy Antar, you know, um, one of one of Eddie's mistakes as uh, the fraud crumbled was that he started to neglect his co-conspirators. Now that's a big mistake. You don't neglect your co-conspirators, do they get right? Yeah. It occurred to him apparently that you know if you treat your your principal co-conspirator badly, he might become a witness against you. You know, Eddie had this blind spot in that regard. So. You know, Sammy was in was in serious trouble. He, he needed money to pay his lawyer bills. His lawyer bills said that he was racking up to defend the family, to defend Eddie. But despite that, Eddie wouldn't give him a nickel. He loaned them money. He had him sign a promissory note for crying out loud. To, 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 he wouldn't give him a penny to, to, for his legal bills. So as Sammy decided, look, I got I got to go. Uh, I got I got to turn state's evidence. I got to protect myself. I got to protect my father, who was in the business too. So he goes to the feds. We're in Newark. The Newark office of the, um, the U.S. attorney was handling it. So he went to he went to the prosecutor and he spilled his guts. Hired a great lawyer. Spilled his guts. Spent three hours there, and the prosecutor says, "I, I don't believe you." <laughs> and uh, you're you're what are you? This is a lot of baloney. What fan? I'm a pump. Come off it. I don't believe you. I've got two witnesses. They are the best witnesses. They were inside. Crazy Eddie and darn, they know what's going on. I don't need you. You're going to have to go. If you want to plead guilty, go ahead and plead guilty. I don't care. You're going to have to go to prison for five years. So, that, so you know, he practically committed suicide. I mean, I mean I'm telling you, he said, look, I'm the CFO of the company. I know everything that's going on. And he doesn't believe me. So, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's how he was greeted when he went to, when he went to the feds. Um, and so, his lawyer advised him, said, look, Sam, uh, you know, you don't, you're sort of in a bad shape here. The chief prosecutor doesn't, doesn't the prosecutor handling the case doesn't, doesn't believe you. So what you're going to have to do is, there's an FBI man here who I trust, and you should trust him. You should go to this FBI man. His name is Paul Hayes. Go to this FBI man. Tell him everything you know. Now, you're not going to have any, anything you say will be held against you. But you should do it anyway, because if you go to this guy, you're putting your yourself at his mercy. But I think you can trust him. It was a really risky play, but that's exactly what he did. And he just told everything he knew to this FBI man, Paul Hayes. And what happens at the end? Is Eddie caught? Eddie is caught. And he goes to trial. Now, these two wonderful witnesses that this federal prosecutor just absolutely adored. They turned out to be a couple of uh, couple of bozos. One of them actually uh, even committed perjury in the course of giving his testimony, and uh, they were completely useless. Sam became the principal witness. He testified against Eddie, and Eddie went to prison. And that did not end the story, because, like, you know, I've noticed when I was reporting the story, you know, nothing ever seemed to go in a linear fashion, you know. There was always something weird that happened right afterwards. So he, they got a conviction. They had this judge who couldn't stand the sight of Eddie and threw the book at him, threw the book at his brother, uh, who was also... um, uh, uh, who who was also in the co-defense, was convicted. And it was overturned. 
it was overturned on, on ridiculous grounds. You know, the, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals mis, misinterpreted something the judge said during the sentencing. And they threw it out. They threw out this, this two-week trial and everything. They had to go had to start all over again. However, uh, Eddie and his brother Mitchell, uh, who both were convicted, I, I haven't mentioned his brother Mitchell, his brother Mitchell was also convicted of security fraud. They both cut plea deals and Eddie went to prison. And he served a total of uh, total of seven years in prison, including the time that he spent in Israel um, fighting extradition, which uh, was one of the more peculiar aspects of the book because uh, uh, he believed, he actually believed that Israel was going to give him refuge, even though he not only he had become a citizen of Israel, okay, because he thought, oh, yeah, I'm a citizen of Israel, they're going to give me refuge. But he also gave a citizen, he also became a citizen under an alias. He, he created a phony citizenship despite doing that, despite making a mockery of the law of return in this fashion. He thought, you know, the Israelis are going to protect me. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? He created a, he created a phony persona and made this guy a citizen of Israel, and he and he didn't think that there were going to be any repercussions. Israel was happy to get rid of the guy. So, anyway. And how, how does the story end? Finally goes to prison. Yeah, and he goes to prison, right, seven years and then? Years. And he gets out, 1999, and the whole world has changed, certainly in the electronics business. You know, he, um, yeah, he, he, he just, uh, you know, he, he, he lives, uh, you know, there's efforts made to revive um, the um, Crazy 80 brand, but they didn't succeed. Uh, and um, he just, uh, you know, he died uh, uh, you know, just a few years ago. Um, they, they, you know, they sort of the reputation lived on. Um, his reputation uh, outlived Eddie, you might say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and uh, lastly, and we'll put, we'll we'll end on, on this. What happens to Sam Antar? Does he serve any prison time? Sam, uh, there are two Sams involved. Of course, there's Sam the, the father accountant. Sam, Sam and the accountant Sam. The father Sam, who was neck deep in the scam, he didn't serve any time in prison. He was he was very lucky. Didn't serve any time in prison. Now, Sam E., the uh, whistleblower, the uh, informant, Sam E. did not, uh, he pleaded guilty to two felony counts. And he was lucky. He got a judge, Judge, judge uh, Politan, uh, who was a great believer in informants. Not every judge would do this. He gave him... Um, uh, a, a sentence that was he had to serve time in, in at home home confinement that was that was the worst he got just just home confinement no home confinement is no is no picnic you don't want to be locked up in your home for whatever it was a year or two but he didn't spend any time in prison amazing and how come uh, here that uh, why is the crazy eddie fraud scheme still taught in every business school across the united states well, I'd say it's because uh, it covered the waterfront of fraud. You know, he um, committed securities fraud. You know, uh, he sort of 
Computed security fraud, you know, in 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 several ways, you know, and, you know, Madoff, you know, he committed only one kind of fraud. You know, it was pyramid scheme. Well, Eddie, Eddie committed security fraud in several ways. So he could teach, you know, if you study the crazy Eddie fraud, you could study how to commit securities fraud in several very interesting ways, which you know, each individually can be utilized to to to, to commit. And he also committed other kinds of fraud, warranty fraud. He committed uh, tax fraud. So you study Eddie and you you really learn from a master. You know, he's no longer alive, but you study how this master criminal carried out fraud. Uh, and, and it can be very educational to people on both sides. I'd say on both sides of the law. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely amazing. Gary, fantastic. Folks, the name of the book is Retail Gangster, The Insane Real-Life Story of Crazy Eddie by Gary Weiss. Uh, highly suggest you go out and get a copy of it. Extremely entertaining, but more so insightful into the mind of someone who uh, creates an amazing fraud and perpetuates it right on Wall Street for years, for years, until the wheels fall off, which sometimes takes a little longer than others, but usually does. <laughs> Right? Frauds uh, collapse under their own weight. Yeah. And that's it. Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Well, I really, uh, really appreciate you having me. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.